0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Heritage Radio Network on Tour is made possible by the support of the Julia Child Foundation.
1: Much of what we've heard involves finding ways to tell stories Uh, whether they're marketing ways or they're legal ways or they are even uh, ways through flavor, in fact. Um, How do we understand um, this food world we're in? How do consumers find a way to educate themselves but also express their power? And what role do different actors and stakeholders in the food system have um, and, and what kind of keeps it all together? And we couldn't think of having a conversation about consumers um, and, in fact, how we cultivate consumers into citizens without talking about media. And we heard today that food media, uh, well, food images, let's say, are responsible for, was it 70% of all images? I think it's actually higher on social media. Um, But most of those images are probably not of low paid workers and they're certainly not of um, chickens, not in pastures necessarily. They are of muffins and they are of deep fried hamburgers and all sorts of things like that. And we've heard also about how one way to force change is to disrupt something, uh, whether it's for economic reasons or it's for, uh, we even heard um, the vice chair of PepsiCo say we need to disrupt the food system, which is interesting, and we can um, have different opinions about how to go about that. Certainly, media has been one of those industries that has been disrupted. Um, food media may be less so, except that the people I'm sitting on this stage with are, represent a different kind of food media in a world where we're obsessed with recipes. And even at the Beard Foundation, Uh, It's one thing for us to talk about the value of trash fish um, as part of an ecological approach to sustainable seafood. It's another thing for us to publish a recipe for a trash fish croquette. And by another thing, I mean someone will then click on it, which is really ultimately what we want the world to do, one place to start. So I'm really excited to moderate this conversation. I hope to be doing absolutely um, no more talking um, with... Three women, which I don't think is inconsequential in this conversation, uh, who are disrupting our understanding of food media. To my left is Kate Cox, who is the editor of something called the New Food Economy. It's a nonprofit newsroom, which I think is a really great way to describe it, that does take serious investigative journalistic uh, ethos and ethics and applies them to stories that aren't often told in food, certainly not on food pages to my right is Helen Rosner, who brought to Eater, which was sort of the definition of the snippy um, soundbite um, digital platform and brought intense in-depth feature writing for which she's won a James Beard Award, now a free agent, so to speak, but has certainly changed that medium. And Tamar Haskell, who has uh, also, with a James Beard Award to show for it, um, as we heard earlier, disrupted traditional media, let's say, or the traditional media's approach to food by reporting on some really intense and important stories. And so, first of all, thank you all for, for, for doing what you do, because uh, without it, um, we might not even be able to have this conversation. So I want to start uh, by talking about this uh, transformation and what I imagine provokes a tension between food stories, where we might want to go to forget everything, and the sort of food reporting that you're doing where you are, in fact, uh, reminding us how important and how deep the subject of food goes. Maybe, Kate, I'd like to start with you, if I may. You may. So, what do you think about that? How how and why? Why now?
2: Um, Oh, that's a good question. So, I should say that I often um, kind of tangle with with the words food media. Food writing, food journalism, because even though that was a thing for a long time, to me, what we're doing is telling the most interesting stories right now. So it happens that a lot of those play out on the plate. There's stories about power. They're stories about money. They're stories about injustice, and those are my favorite kind of stories to tell because I'm just a journalist. I'm not. Um, I'm not a change maker, necessarily, or a disruptor. So what I look for is the best narrative. And this, um, of all the reporting I've done in my professional life, is where the best narratives are. Um, but I, I would say every spring I get called to go to Columbia University and talk to the food journalism uh, track there, which is now a thing. And, um, and I always get the same question right away from a student who will say, but you guys don't write about food at all, which is... Pretty true. We don't write about food as a product uh, because they don't need the new food economy for that. The world does not need the new food economy to talk about, you know, the central aspects of mozzarella. There are plenty of other
3: places that are
2: doing that. Um, But what we do do is tell really interesting stories about people, um, mostly. And that's because really good food stories or the best food stories are not about food at all. They're about the people who make it. They're about the systems that are in play and the levers of power and the mechanisms that control the system. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's the most gratifying kind of reporting. Um, and, but it's, it's, it, is it about food? Pretty rarely. And in fact, we have an, I will often get ornery in the newsroom and say, like, Ah, we don't have any food on the website, guys. We need some food here. It's too, you know, too whatever, systemic. So it's a pleasure when we get to actually <laughs> write a little bit about food and product.
1: Okay, and Helen, you've sort of gone the other way, if, if I may. If food, well, or food snark, let's say, was the eater uh, stock and trade. Uh, and you brought something behind that. And I'm curious about the reception of that and also uh, from the process of producing it, um, the depth that might have given to you in, in understanding the subject of food.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the the stories that I worked on at, at Eater, the features department, which... Um, features is one of those sort of vague words that means nothing and everything and we we basically um, defined it as stories that took a little bit more effort than just sort of a day of research or, or a day of reporting. Things that really kind of involved getting into the meat of something and also a certain analytical component. And we're all familiar with that, right? That's, that's sort of the stock and trade of, of extraordinary publications like The New Yorker and The Atlantic. Um, and it also shows up for sure in food media. Bon Appetit has an incredible feature well. Silver has an incredible feature well. Um, but building something like that from the ground up gave us an extraordinary opportunity. We could kind of look at the landscape of food media but also the world of digital media, also the world of what the sort of buzzwordy is, is called long form storytelling in general, and say how can we create something that doesn't necessarily exist um, so what I was interested in doing and what I'm still interested in doing what I think um, you know, what, what I think Kate is interested in doing and Tamara's interested in doing it is, is really finding the stories that need to be told and putting the time and energy and resources into telling them. It's, uh, it's easy to say that something like feature writing is a vanity project. If you are a, a benevolent billionaire who's interested in buying a media organization, please come talk to me after this. But um, the, the rule of thumb is that long-term storytelling, and not long-term in terms of the consumption, but in terms of the creation, long-term reporting, long-term research, long-term editorial processes, fact-checking, copy-editing, original art, things like that, are not necessarily worth it. They don't necessarily pay off in terms of clicks or in terms of advertiser interest. And what we found, and what I had hoped to be the case and was thrilled to find out to be true, was that that is absolutely a lie. It turns out that this kind of serious, rigorous, hard-hitting reporting, and I don't know if it's regardless of the topic, but certainly it's the case in the food world, rewarded us, 10, 20, 30, 50 times more than we were expecting it to in terms of things like hard numbers, in terms of the numbers of readers who are coming, the, kinds of the readers who are not just coming but staying, staying to read other things, coming back week after week after week to read these stories, and also in terms of things like advertiser interest and beard awards and other sort of signifiers of prestige where we don't use prestige as a, as a hollow term. We use it to say like, this is the stuff that we are putting a lot of effort into because it's important. Important doesn't necessarily mean serious. Some of the stories were funny, some of the stories were fluffy, but they were serious, they were real. Um, Mm. And I think that food enables that. I think that the the, the lens of food, this idea that we're all so familiar with, that you can tell the story of the entire world by picking the right type of food, the right moment in its life cycle to film it through, like that's very much the case. And it, it lends humanity and immediacy and gravity and personality to virtually any story that you want to tell.
1: Fascinating. Uh, my, I have a quick follow-up question for that, which is, are you telling that story to people looking for a recipe or a new place to eat, or are people looking for that um, that depth coming to the food section now to find that story? That's a great question. I
4: love that question. Um, I have a real answer and a, a glib answer. Okay. The real answer is no, I think the person who's looking for a muffin recipe is not looking for 500 words on wheat production and how it relates to muffins. Or, sorry, <laughs> 5,000 words. 500 words, that's fine. Anybody can skim through that. But, like, <laughs> but you know, there is probably an incredible 5,000-word story to be written about muffins. But if you want to make breakfast, that's not what you're interested right. in. The glib answer is those are the same persons. I think that we all contain multitudes. I want to make muffins for breakfast and then I'm thinking about muffins all day and I want to know more about it at 3 or 4 in the afternoon. And the beauty of media, durational media that exists in the world is you can read it at any time. Just because I publish it at 9 a.m. on Wednesday doesn't mean you have to read it at 9 a.m. on Wednesday. It will be there for you when you want to read 5,000 words about muffins. And my job is to make sure that when you want that, it has already been provided.
1: Tamar, you actually now work for a news organization owned by a benevolent billionaire of sorts. So uh, well, jealous. I'm freelance. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're freelance. D-
5: don't be jealous. There's no paycheck.
1: <laughs> no, benevolence only goes so far in these matters. Um, but uh, let's talk a little bit to me about your audience for stories, because you, do come, you don't come at it from the recipe section, let's say. I, um, and
5: I think it's a testament to the different varieties of media yeah. that are out there that my experience is completely different from Helen's that I think you can do all kinds of stories about what I think are hard-hitting, important issues that absolutely nobody will read. And, you know, (laughs) tackle the farm (laughs) bill. I mean, and no amount of stories, I think, is is going to engage people. And for me, the problem, and this is why Helen has 30 billion Twitter followers and I have 17, because she is No, no, I have 17. (laughs) I've seen you, you're a step ahead. (laughs) She is able, the reason that she can sit here and say that, oh yeah, you can do a story about anything and and it's hard hitting and people will come and click is that she has found this formula that makes it work. It's eluded me for the most part. (laughs) I can help, I mean, I'm freelance now, I'm I'm yours.
1: (laughs) Why do you think?
5: uh, Well, oh God, it must be me. And, but no, seriously, the, the, uh, the, okay, I want to go back to what you yeah. said about disruption. And before, before I was a disruptor, I was a disruptee. And I gotta tell you, if there's gonna be disruption, it's way better to be a disruptor, because mm-hmm. being a disruptee, you know, I wrote for for Connie Nast and, and, and Time Warner back in the day when they all had to get monthly magazines out and they all paid two or three dollars a word and you could make a living doing it. And you can't do that anymore, or it's it's very difficult. And so things are different. And in some ways, my disruption is very traditional. I mean, my showcase is a column in a traditional uh, newspaper, a newspaper that I think does a very good job. But but I am grateful to do that, because the my editors don't even tell me what my traffic is, because that's not what they want me to focus on. They want me to focus on the work that I do. And, Fortunately, there is a place in the world for media that, um, that looks hard at stories that might not have that broad audience, but is still important to do.
1: And does the fact that Washington Post and a few other marquee news outlets are now the first line of defense of what we might call democracy, large <laughs> yes. <laughs> Does, uh, does that put food in a different place because it has to? Or does that make it a more uh, fruitful place, if, I, if you will, because less attention is paid and you can do more? I think
5: it does. And this this dovetails with the conversation that Karen was just having and some of the other themes that have come up. That um, one of the things that weighs heavy on me is that when I do, I work for this newspaper that that is um, supposed to be a responsible truth teller and i feel very acutely that i have to get it right Mm. Um, and one of the things one of the questions that you know when we talk about media as a as a lever for promoting activism if you're going to promote activism if you're going to spur people to actually take action by god you better be right Mm. and and you know this morning we did an exercise about how difficult it is for us to change our minds and how we all us journalists included make decisions based on our affiliations and our guts and our values and you know what keeps me up at night is okay I, I can see all your biases but mine is completely inaccessible to me so it, it makes me circumspect um, about my any role I would have to try and 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 get people to go out in the world and take action.
1: So one of the pieces of data that came from our research, and I don't think we've said this, but the full summary of our consumer work is available on jamesbeard.org, for those of you who wanna find some of the more uh, details of the data, was that the, the whether or not respondents identified as Republican or Democrat didn't seem to impact the answers, the changes they were making or the reasons they were making those changes. So we felt there might be some real power in that um, in a time when politics and even money to support causes and activism are going in other areas. Thank you for the work that Washington Post does. And I'm wondering um, if the politics of food, sitting in this moment when I think food writing has has never been richer, never been more flesh full of of ideas and impact and, and influence, whether um, the politics that you want to play come into the reporting or whether um, you're trying to redirect a story actively for an audience that you know is listening. Does that, Kate, Can you? who are you writing for and what are you trying to get
2: across? Oh, that's easy. Okay. Well, I'll just put that in a <laughs> right. little in a capsule. Um, no, I'm. I, we're still figuring out who we're writing for. You know, we. I, I think we. We started this project three years ago, thinking that only the industry might be the food industry might be interested in what we were writing, and almost immediately, maybe three months into publishing, that was proved completely untrue. People were interested in deeper stories about where their food came from and who made it beyond. The, the kind of Know Your Farmer narrative that we'd all gotten very comfortable with by shopping at Whole Foods or, or whatever. Um, w- the one thing we didn't realize is that we would be reporting on politics in the way that we are. That is something that fundamentally changed. We thought we'd be covering farm bill, like there's a little, you know, there's a little checklist of things you're going to cover if you write about food and politics in any way. You're going to cover the farm bill. You're going to cover labor disputes and those, um, you know, those pieces of legislation. We had to make a pivot at the first of this year when... when people who were working in food began to feel really in peril about the projects that they put lots of years of their time and energy into, and they were not just worried about whether they were going to be able to execute their nonprofit stuff, it's like, will we be able to keep our workers? So everything became incredibly grave, and we we had put our reporting lens um, in that, it's like right in the hot middle of that gravity, and we've continued to do that because that's where the stories are coming from. We're still learning about our readers, um, and, and it's a challenge, I'm not gonna lie. It's a daily editorial challenge every day when we make a decision about what to run, especially as we're more news driven. I think what we're mostly looking for is where's the humanity, where are the people, what does this look like on the ground, um, you know, beyond, uh, you know, and I love writing about policy, right? And talk about one reader, like my mother. I can actually see her in our analytics, like wa- waving from Denver. Hi, I'm reading your farm bill story. But like, uh, I, love, I love to talk about that, but the only way to deliver that information to a reader is to say, this affects a human being, and it actually maybe affects you, human being. Um, I'll give you a really good example of recent coverage. So we covered the gypsa. Uh, the pull-out of of the GYPSA legislation last week. It's not really important if you don't know necessarily what GYPSA is, but we had to make a decision that day about how much of an explainer to do at the top of that piece, right? Which is like a 100 years old worth of policy that we have. I'm like, just, you know, get three inches, guys. Get it into three inches. Um, Just enough, not too much, enough to go in and know what what we're covering, and then when we headlined it, we had to make another decision, which is that this happens to be a piece of policy that no one will notice on their plate. But if they care at all about who makes their food and where it's produced and the quality of those things, quality of life, quality of land, it matters like a whole bunch. And it was going to deeply affect the lives of contract farmers who cared about this legislation for a decade. Okay, you don't have to care about that if you just like to eat chicken. It's totally fine. Um, but that's a, those are the decisions that we make in the newsroom, and they are not easy. Mm-hmm. And we often get it wrong, and we often you know, face our own biases. Mm-hmm. And I think just to, just to answer your, mm-hmm. your point, which is so valid, one way that we address that in our newsroom is we hire people who can push back. So if you're an editor, right, you hire reporters who will say, that's not what my reporting showed. We just had that, you know, we went, you, you enter every piece with a question, okay, what do we think we know about this? And then you hire the right people around you to say, wrong, wrong on the ground, my sources don't tell me that, or you hire great fact checkers, but you basically make it your business to surround yourself with people who will tell you that you're being biased or that you're entering a story with bias, and other than that, my God, I don't know, but I'll call you at 3 a.m. when I'm up worrying about that tonight. I'll be up worrying about <laughs> it
1: too. But, but isn't that being wrong part of the thing that is always not been part of the food I mean the food media I'll use the term because you went there maybe it was the best brownies or maybe it wasn't but you didn't expect to be pushed back on what a brownie was right in some way and so so that's part of the culture of reading about food I think that even even were you to look at some of the great gourmet magazine article features that were written they were never about something that that did wanted you to feel uncomfortable that gave you a story perhaps you didn't want to know you just assumed that what they ate in Italy was delicious and you didn't want to go and say actually it's crap so so, <laughs> sorry Italians, um, so how do you handle that? I mean, how, how do you make it readable, even if, even if you are just a news consumer, not a food consumer, and we'll talk about that, that, that consumption of news as a separate item, but.
4: Well, I, you know, I think this also goes back, I think a little bit to what Tamar was saying earlier. Um, I don't know, I, I disagree that there is value to reporting a story that nobody reads, not because there isn't value in the reporting, but because, if somebody doesn't read it, it doesn't matter. Like, it's useful for the record, I guess. It's useful for the archive, certainly, and I think that every story should be covered. The world should be flooded with reporters taking on everything that everybody is saying at all times. But um, <laughs> but it is essential that stories be read and, and that they be read by the people who will best receive them, which is sometimes people who are ready to agree with them and is sometimes people who are ready to be challenged by them. Um, so. You know, I I think that it's important to think Mm -hmm. about like putting the explainer at the top of something that may be esoteric or maybe dry. I think it's even more important to think about like how do we make this not dry? How do we make this not esoteric? And sometimes you end up in what I think of as kind of like the inevitable, almost eye-rolling cascade of like, well, if this happens to the farmers, then this is gonna happen to the market, then this is gonna happen to the large-scale agricultural buyers, and this is what's gonna happen at McDonald's, and this is what's gonna happen at, you know, Del- like D'Agostino's, and this is what's gonna happen in your kitchen, and your lunch, and, and this sort of cascade where it's like, here's how it affects you. Like, please let me appeal to your selfishness to get you to care about this thing that I need you to care about. But that works, it's what works. It's, it's the thing that needs to happen. Um, finding the audience can be hard. And I think that the, the stuff that I was talking about before, the kind of prestigey, long me stuff that I tend to focus most of my energies on um, is kind of a, a little bit of a Trojan horse for a lot of readers. What we found um, when I was at Eater was that we would get in readers who were new to our site, but not only were they new to our site, they were readers who generally were new to food-specific media. So they were, you know, the stories were getting picked up by quote-unquote generalist publications. Um, Sometimes, you know, the Washington Post food section would link to us, but sometimes it would be the Atlantic, the New York Times, the New Yorker, um, the all gawker, RIP. Like, you know, there were things where the audience was not necessarily an audience that considered itself a food consumer, and we were getting them in the door. We were speaking some kind of secret code somewhere in the first couple paragraphs of the story, tried very, very hard to make sure that the headline and the first sentence were catnip like generalist <laughs> exciting catnip to get them in the door so that they could make it to the bottom of the story. I mean, I think like the, the thing that I live my life by is I need to get the reader to the end. I mm. need to get you to the bottom of the story. And if it's, if it's 100 words, if it's 1,000 words, if it's 10,000 words, my job as an editor or my job as a writer is to get you there. Because presumably the important stuff I'm saying goes all the way mm-hmm. through. So there is a calculus, right? I feel a little mercenary, like crafting a message to get inside a reader. I mean, I feel like I'm in advertising, not an editorial, but it's Well, it's you're important. talking
1: there, I think, about the craft of writing, and you bring to mind, uh, to me, the example of that is actually an old example, which is The New Yorker, which has made me read to the end of stories I care nothing whatsoever about, but you just mm-hmm. can't put them down, mm-hmm. and there's something there. The craft of writing has been different from the craft of journalism, certainly. I mean, tomorrow you could speak to that, perhaps, that... Uh, yeah, and I,
5: I wanted uh, to answer something that Helen said, because I think this is a really in- interesting uh, exploration. And I guess you know, when I talk about <laughs> nobody reading something, fortunately, I don't mean literally nobody. <laughs> 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 and, and the thing, because I write in the Washington Post, and Washington is where policy is made, I think that, that I have an audience that tends to be policy-centric. And, and so it's not so much that... that you know, it goes in the ether, at least I hope not, um, it, as it is um, of more interest to a very specific sub audience. And please don't take that away from me. <laughs> and and it's not so much a general right. interest audience. But don't get me wrong. I would love to find where, you know, the, the sweet spot is where you can both address these issues that Kate and I have been talking about and try and bring people in in exactly mm-hmm. the way that you're saying. I think that's that's... Yeah, and it doesn't work universally, question.
4: right? Like I think you know th- there were some stories that we had that were flops There were a whole lot of stories that we just didn't run. I mean, you know, you choose your wins I also think though that it's really important to think about sort of broadly the calculus and forgive me if this is to journalism 101 for you guys but it's something I try to think about whenever I work on the story, which is that there's the content of the story there is the byline, the person who's writing it, and there's the publication in which it appears. And all three of those lend different forms of authority to the story. All three of those in different ways tell a previously unfamiliar reader how much they should care. So when you're writing in the Washington Post, you're writing in the Washington frickin' Post. Like when and it's, it's me. And when, <laughs> it's you and and it's you and it that that you know catapults it into upper echelons but like Stress like weird. you know my dog could write a story in the Washington Post and people <laughs> would read it because the Washington Said Post it, right. has set up uh, well, no, and, and this is important. I mean, the no, I step know. two is you, but like step one is if it is in the pages of the Washington Post, it matters. If it's in the pages of the New York Times, it matters. There's, there's a very small list of publications where whatever makes it onto those pages matters by virtue of the fact that it has made it there. And this is us putting our trust into those mm-hmm. gatekeepers, putting our trust into the editors, into the, the business side, the owners, the, this sort of brain trust of people who decide what makes it in. Then the second level is the byline, right? So someone like Tamar, who is universally respected and is considered an expert on the things that she covers, can write in the Washington Post. She can also write for Eater. She could also write for, like, you know, coolfoodstuff.blogspot.net.libya. I mean, it, like, and people would still care because it's care? Tamar. Sure, probably. <laughs> I mean, it's blood money, but yeah. But, the, okay. um, you know, so... so but I want to pick levels.
1: up on this concept because one of the disruptions has been this sort of um, the ability for everything to look like news, and I'll, I'll use the fake news world, but a word phrase. But I'm going to use a different example. And Helen and I participated in a summit last week on the future of fine dining with some uh, esteemed chefs and restaurateurs from around the world, primarily Europe. And one of the th- comments that was made was that if someone takes a photograph of a hot dog and puts it on Instagram, or someone takes a photograph of some complicated dish in a three-star restaurant that took 45 people to make and 17 farmers and however many hours, and puts on Instagram, on Instagram they're the same. Their, their value is the same. I ate them. I participated. In fact, more people. The value might be higher for the hamburger because more recognize it and more have a you know can relate to it, and they more are going to forward that. In news, we have this ex- environment right now where a lot of things look like they came from places I've never heard of. Those, those, those marquee names, that sort of uh, credibility granting institution um, impact doesn't hold. We've seen it in all other sectors. H- how do we negotiate that in food, in food media? How do, we, how do we, why does all the work that you put into the new food economy that comes up looking like some, a story I made up or some of the facts that are on our cards, um, how do you negotiate this new environment of taking information from people who are clicking only on the things that interest them anyway or that conform to their worldview? What do we do with that and I'm not asking because there's an answer. I'm just wondering
5: it's really hard, yeah. and you know you can especially on some of the controversial topics, you go out there and you can see all kinds of of stuff that passes for news um, and i and I think. The only answer that I found is to be super, super careful. And you know, the first thing I do is to find the smartest person who doesn't agree with me and listen. Um, and I, I want to make sure that I don't open myself up to charges of bias, although it hasn't helped me. Google me. You'll find out I'm a covert Monsanto operative. But, <laughs> but this is the environment. <laughs> that we're working in. Um, but, yeah. I, but again, yeah. I think in some ways, this is an enemy of what Helen has been talking about. Right. Because as soon as you feel like you have to be so cautious and so many of my my pieces read, like, well, on the one hand and on the other hand, and and so that's not compelling then journalism. and you end up saying nothing. Right. I mean, well, right. Well, I would hope well, I no, avoid I mean, that. But yeah, no, it's exactly true that this is the enemy of good storytelling.
4: Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think though that there are actually two things, and two, I mean, there are probably more than two, but there are, I, have, I have two concrete answers, right? And, and um, one of them speaks directly to this, which is that I think that like journalism voice, right? Like this sort of no first person pronouns, everything is in passive voice, sort of newspaper Arget needs to die that is it's mm-hmm. so it's not just outdated. It's a liability I think that that stating things dryly in this sort of like, you know phone Walter neutral, right, heavy, right. Like phone neutrality like this is the news voice that newspapers have used is, is It's it's a relic. It's a dinosaur and it's a liability increasingly because it is so easily um, You know spoofed and so easily cast off. So, you know saying I'm writing this story and it it starts to sort of shove you a little bit into the realm of opinion and we can go off on a whole tangent about how I believe there's no such thing as bias free journalism. But like, you know, if Tamar is speaking to the smartest person on the opposition, I think it's useful for her, for her in her own voice to provide context for the decision to do that, to say like, listen, here's my methodology. I went out in search of a question. It's something that's been happening in men's magazines and women's magazines and also general magazines, but specifically in these sort of gendered magazine constructions for some reason, for decades and decades. This idea of a columnist who says, "I have a question. I'm going to go out and do this." This was parodied by Carrie Bradshaw, right? <laughs> but it turns out that this is actually a solution, right? This is a sol- this is an insulation against these accusations of fakery, and it's, ins- it's an insulation against actual fakery because you are showing your work. That's effectively what it is. It says, "I'm a human being. I'm fallible. I have a series of choices that I'm making, and I'm showing my work right here within the story instead of presenting the story, which is a tight 300 words, and then also here is like a giant notebook full mm-hmm. of all of my citations." And I would
2: I would love to say something about that, so I- I regularly, <laughs> when, when writers call or, or, or pitch me, um, the ones that I will talk to because they didn't pitch the brownie that will change the world um, and the cool dude who made it, when they, um, <laughs> bias, you just saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. Um, I, often I will have writers say to me, like, we don't really get you. Like, you the, it's funny, but it's newsy. Like, what do you do? Like, they want direction, right? So I think one thing you do is be extremely frank about what you are and are not. The new food economy is not Reuters. What do we do? We report the news in voice. And I think it's hard, you know, I've had, mm-hmm. I've had, and that may be disruptive to some degree, although I don't really know why. Often we do it just for ourselves, right? Like, I'll get to the top of a paragraph on, that I'm about to embark on that involves dense policy, and I'll say, like, here's the deal with this. Because that's exactly how I would explain it to you in person, and that's how I'm explaining it to myself. And I don't see any problem with seeing the presence of the reporter in the story. In fact, often a reporter will call and say, I reported this, and I reported that, and I talked to this person, and I talked to that, and I don't really know. And I always say, that's the story. We don't really know. It's really hard to make these decisions, you know? It's confusing, it's a conflicted marketplace, like all those jargony terms, but it really is. I wanna see the presence of the reporter in the story, unless we have the paradigm from our publication that that's not what we do. But we don't have that. I, well, but,
1: I would like to note know, that that is a major change in journalism, and th- that's a disruption of sorts. It's a massive, change yeah, right. it's a huge I, And I'm not saying I'm against it, but but Journalism 101 used to be, you never use the right. word I, so,
2: right. And, and we're not talking, Sorry. We're yeah. not talking first person like, oh, I have I went, feelings yeah. about, you know, like let's talk about, you know, all my feelings. It's more like, <laughs> hey, I'm a person who, gen- who reported this story and is sharing with you the experience mm-hmm. of trying to understand it. And that's often why we write explainers at the top of our pieces. It's partially so the reporter can make absolutely sure they get the issue. Um, and I, I just think we need to be honest about, hey, like we're all in this system together. Whether we're covering it, we're all eating in it. So let's let's acknowledge that maybe that's and it has the bonus
4: of being readable, right? We were talking about how do you get the reader in the door. If I'm having a conversation with you, you're immediately much more engaged. I mean, it's all of this psychological gamesmanship, which is what all you know, sort of competitive journalism ultimately boils down to.
1: So in the last forty-nine seconds we have (laughs) left. I want to just touch on this idea that media is a consumable, I mean obviously it's been part of what you've talked about and there are audiences and consumers and there are economic transactions that have to take place in order for it to exist in some way. And perhaps think about what we've learned about consumers in general and how that might apply to the consumption of media if you will. Just. Two thoughts
2: about, yeah. I have two, yeah. I guess, and they're, they're general in, in nature. But for us, it's defy everything everyone ever told you about how to do your job. Mm. And by that, I mean assume the reader wants enough context that they will read 2,000 words. Don't give them a crossword puzzle when you can give them an explainer. You know, no. We have, we have an executive editor who doesn't write for us too much, but he writes commentary, which we call commentary, Pat Clinton. And he said to me very early when we first started, they're not going to tell you what you want. You're going to tell them what they want, and trust that if the story is good and the reporting is good, they're going to stay with you. That maybe is a disruption, but that—that's mm-hmm. it. That's how that's how we do it.
1: Other thoughts on consumption of media? Just two seconds. Left. Yeah, I,
5: along the same lines. I think that you know my job is to bring people in who have this small interest. Maybe it's you know maybe not just the muffin, but something right beyond the muffin. And try and and broaden that reader's horizons just a little bit. Try and leverage that piece of interest into something um, that that's 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 bigger.
4: Yeah, I think I think the goal of the goal of media, the function of media, is to tell people what they should be caring about, and whether they should be caring about it because it is imminent disastrous policy or they should be caring about it because it's long-term disastrous policy or they should care about it because it's cool or it's delicious or it's interesting or it's moving things forward or it's changing the representational landscape, whatever it happens to be, it is the job of media to confidently tell people, this is what you care about and here is why you should care. And I think if we trust media to have that position of authority, and if we as the creators of media trust ourselves to have that authority, it can, it can be an uncomfortable thing to carry. It's, it, it feels weird to tell people how to feel. Um, that's, that's the way that the system operates well. You have, to, you have to, to face things with strength and just be confident saying, this is the muffin you're going to have for breakfast, this is the policy you should be protesting against, and say them with equal forcefulness.
1: Well, I, for one, am grateful that such thoughtful women are thinking about these things for us and makes me comfortable. Thank you very much.
6: Congresswoman Shelley Pingree really walks the talk. Since 2008, this passionate legislator from Maine brings her other life's work as an organic farmer, and an advocate for a better food system to our nation's capital, where she helps shape food policy that connects farmers and chefs to corporations and consumers. Because as Shelley has said, it can't just be Washington and lobbyists making all the decisions. She also believes that the good food movement crosses all parties, and I think that's a downright refreshing perspective for a politician these days. Tonight we'll also be honoring Shelley Pingree with our James Beard Leadership Award uh, for her achievements in bringing her farmer's voice and passion to Congress and to Americans. I really look forward to hearing what you have to say today and always please help me welcome the Honorable Congresswoman Shelley Pingree. Congresswoman Shelley Pingree really walks the talk. Since 2008, this passionate legislator from Maine brings her other life's work as an organic farmer and an advocate for a better food system to our nation's capital, where she helps shape food policy that connects farmers and chefs to corporations and consumers. Because as Shelley has said, it can't just be Washington and lobbyists making all the decisions. She also believes that the good food movement crosses all parties. And I think that's a downright refreshing perspective for a politician these days. Tonight, we'll also be honoring Shelley Pingree with our James Beard Leadership Award uh, for her achievements in bringing her farmer's voice and passion to Congress and to Americans. I really look forward to hearing what you have to say
7: today. And always, please help me welcome the Honorable Congresswoman, I'll tell you my perspective on it from the last eight years. So I think it's easy to say there's no surprise uh, federal food policies have not caught up with what consumers want today or what we're all talking about. In many ways, it's stuck in the 50s, 60s, 70s, the Earl Butts era, get bigger, get out, uh, consolidation of farms, processing of food, um, things that are very different today. And It's been wonderful, frankly, to see so much data um, that confirms what I experience all the time. Uh, the USDA and the Farm Bill food policy has been about, uh, you know, kind of the opposite of what people want. Um, the gentleman from Pepsi mentioned that earlier today. In some ways, food policy and farm policy have been the opposite. We've incentivized many of the wrong things. Things like corn syrup made some things cheap, commodities cheap, and put more of them into our food than we should have had. Uh, Somebody mentioned we don't put enough into specialty crops, which is frankly fruits and vegetables, and we focus too much on commodities. Welcome to the world of agriculture policy in the Farm Bill. Everything we've seen about the statistics today, Uh, plays out what's happening dramatically and dramatically fast. It may be plate tectonics, but we're getting closer to a tipping point around this, the fact that 67% of people changed their diets in the last three years, mostly to healthier foods, and all those other numbers about what people want to eat, why they care about the environment and what they eat. Uh, All these factors are coming into our food decisions today. And uh, policymakers can wait and hang out and think we don't have to deal with it, but the fact the marketplace is changing very fast with or without us. As you heard, I have a background in doing this. Uh, I actually got involved in the earliest food movements of the 1970s when we were just starting to talk about kind of natural foods, whole foods. I was a back-to-the-lander in Maine, interested in sustainable food, and I've really seen the changes in my 45 years of a farmer, an activist, and uh, the policymaker. When I had my first farm stand in the 1970s, people enjoyed the fact that they could come to my stand. It was nice to have somebody in the neighborhood you could get fresh milk or eggs um, or vegetables from, but virtually nobody said, you know, is it organically grown? What goes into your crops? What's different about this? I served on the Agriculture Committee in my local legislature, my state legislature, in the 90s, and there were a couple of conversations about GMOs and irradiated food, um, bovine growth hormone, but mostly uh, it was a quick debate. It was very much dismissed with and nobody took up the policy conversation and did anything with it Um, I'm lucky enough now to be a farmer. I run an organic farm, uh, an inn, and a restaurant, and um, I'm very fortunate to have two of my daughters today, both of whom run restaurants, so go figure. None of us planned on that. Um, But the fact is, today at our farm, uh, the marketplace is completely different. Uh, We do uh, 100-person dinners in our barn with fresh locally food and a tour of the farm, and they sell out practically before we get them on our website every summer, once every single week. Our restaurant is busy every night, and people who come to the farm stand ask a lot of questions they know a lot about the food we grow they want to know if it's organically certified they want to know um, what the pigs had for lunch today what the view is like for the chickens Um, they're very engaged and very involved and frankly my state is a good example of this which is really wonderful for me being in congress because i get to go back and say okay you don't all you don't all agree with me all the time but let me tell you about what's happening in maine the state of maine which was um once a very agricultural state we uh we fed the Union Army in the 1800s. Sorry, for telling you, Southerners. But um, we were a real agricultural state. Then agricultural policies changed. A lot of that land went out of use, and now It's coming back. We're one of the few states where the average age of our farmer is going down or on the decline. We have twice the number of women going into farming today, and we're increasing our amount of acreage. It's very revitalizing to our rural economy, and it shows that there's a trend going on whether we think that's what agriculture looks like or not. It's just happening, and it's it's changing states like mine. Now, there's a little talk we always get into. This, um, you know, is all this kind of an elitist thing, and you know, only if you have a lot of money can you buy food. Well, Maine's 30th in per capita. in income. So we are not a wealthy state, but you can go into virtually any diner, any restaurant today, and they have a listing of who's growing that food. They want to talk about it. People in my state in big numbers, they want to buy locally, they're willing to pay a little bit more, we've surveyed them on this, Um, if it would help the rural economy or the farmer down the road, because this is is so intense. And for me, it's it's anecdotal. So I've taken a lot of those experiences um, to my job in Washington when I came eight years ago. Uh, frankly, I was very engaged in health care policy in my state legislature and I thought, oh, I'll get in there and I'll do some work on that. Well. That's kind of a difficult thing these days, but but it, it worked out well because I found out there was a long line of members of Congress who were experts in healthcare policy and prescription drugs and wanted to do something about that, but almost nobody wanted to be on the Agriculture Committee. It was people who represented a commodity, a region of the country, but in really thinking about the things we're talking about today, a food system, consumers t- changing tastes, organic food, sustainable food, buying locally, uh, many of my cons- colleagues are interested in it, but they left a door wide open for me, so I've been very lucky for the last eight years uh, to work on the Farm Bill, on farm policy. I sit on the Agricultural Appropriations Committee now, so that's where we appropriate the funding. And I've worked; I'm working now on my second Farm Bill. On the first Farm Bill, we wrote a uh, our own bill. It was called the Food, Farms, and Jobs Act because everything is about a job. Um, But we wanted to kind of incorporate a lot of good ideas in the way it works in Washington is you often write a big comprehensive bill, and then you just hope you can put pieces of that into different bills or get the language into an appropriations bill, and I won't go through all the boring details. But we did um, manage to work in many of our policies, a lot of them directed to the small farmer. A lot of them, um, over the years, we've been there to fund things for the small to medium-sized farmer, whether it's about supporting farmers' market, aggregating foods, getting more um, infrastructure out there, slaughterhouses, dairying facilities, value-added producer grants that help farmers um, to put out a hoop house or do something um, to get a value-added product. And we do a lot around nutrition, and uh, whether it's school lunch or SNAP benefits. We were lucky enough to work with um, the wonderful Gus Schumacher and Michelle on wholesome wave in our double bucks uh, program, where you, uh, if you have a SNAP benefit, you can take it to a farmer's market and twice the amount in fresh fruits and vegetables, because we do believe it doesn't matter what's in your pocket, you should have access to fresh and healthy food, and that's what people want to do. Um, I've seen a real change. You've heard it a couple of times today. Uh, this isn't a Republican or Democratic issue. Now it comes and gets that way in politics, whether we are gonna you know, make cuts in the budget to the SNAP program or, or something else, you can get to the kind of difficult side of it. But the fact is that most of these things are supported with consumers regardless of your age, your economic status, your party. Uh, you are interested in getting fresh, healthy food on your table and so many of the things that we saw today. And if it makes any of you feel better, I have had more Republican co-sponsors to my bill this year than ever in my eight years. So, go there. My little political aside is it's, it's one of two things, probably both. One, I think, is um, that there's so many difficulties going on in the administration today that a lot of my Republican colleagues are more collegial about working with Congress. Uh, You don't see it all the time, but it's sort of like, well, let's work together, even if we can't work with um, the challenges that are going on with the president and the administration. But probably more importantly is Whether you're from Nebraska, or Iowa, or California, you are hearing from constituents, you're hearing from local businesses, you're hearing from farmers who are saying, you know, I'm getting into a new market and I'm getting paid more, or this is what I want to have in my kids' school lunch program, or this is what I want to see in my local school uh, supermarket. And so my colleagues on both sides of the aisle are hearing that and they're saying, hey, I should get in on this. So I'll tell you about a couple of the bills we're working on now. Um, One of them is uh, the Organic Agriculture Research Act. Now everything doesn't have to be organic, but one of the things we've uh, surveyed over the last few years on agriculture appropriations is how much the USDA spends on organic research. Um, Took a couple of years to get all those numbers, But um, in their last analysis, about about one-tenth of 1% of all USDA dollars go into organic research. Now, today it's about 13% of the market and growing. We don't have enough commodities to fill the demand. So, of course, we're outraged by that and saying, you know, if the USDA is there to give farmers a better opportunity to get into the good markets, the better prices, um, if it's to get consumers the products that they need, we should do that. So our bill more than doubles that research and basically says that. That's what we're here for. You shouldn't tell a farmer who wants to transition into organic farming, and many of them do, uh, just go do it like they did in the 1800s. You know, we've got a lot of new techniques. We should be researching seed varieties and so many of the things people were talking about today. Um, So that's one of our bills. We also have another um, Local Farms Act, which, uh, again, it sort of highlights this area of growth Local Foods is about $8.7 billion in sales, so it's a growing market, whether it's um, at your local grocery store or at a local restaurant. Um, And we've done a few things in this one, a a lot of it has to do with helping people to make an organic transition, dealing with food safety standards, more of the infrastructure projects we talked about before, as we get a growing number of farms, we don't have the infrastructure we used to have down the road, whether it's processing facilities or helping the small farmer put everything to a, a, you know, in combination with a bigger farmer so they can sell it to an institution or a school. Um, And we also have more consumer things in this one, too, as we did before, helping low-income people and veterans to get um, CSA shares, a growing way that people um, work with their local farms, a prescription pilot program, which is also another wonderful idea from Wholesome Wave and others, and and thinking about food being medicine and can your doctor write you a prescription um, because food will help make you healthier, not just medications, giving schools more flexibility to purchase locally. We've learned so much and worked so much with schools, schools that have school gardens, schools that have. Uh, buy more local produce. You can see the difference in kids when they think the carrot that they just pulled out of the garden is actually the one on their plate in the school lunch, Uh, making those connections, visiting with a local farm. If we really want to change childhood obesity and and develop better health health habits, we have to start when kids are young. Another bill of ours is the Food Recovery Act, and we've heard a little bit about food waste today, so I won't get into all the details in my short time, but we waste a lot of the food in this country, almost 50% of it. We've got a lot of people going hungry, and there's a lot we could be doing to reduce that. So we have a very comprehensive piece of legislation. Um, everything from making food, food date labels consistent. Uh, how many of you have taken something out of the cupboard and said, you know, it says November 15th. Does that mean I'm going to die on the 16th if I eat it? <laughs> or it's still good, but maybe not so great. So, um, uh, And we find people... They debate this in their homes, so sometimes we call this domestic harmony bill. You know, you'll get along better. Uh, but basically, it's uh, widely supported by food processors. They want to they make sure that there's some uh, uh, normalcy to this, too, and it's just two simple labels, one that lets you know when it's going to be best to eat it and one that it's actually not safe. Getting rid of some of the barriers of food donation, making it easier for whether it's farmers or retailers to donate, and a lot more investment in large-scale composting And uh, anaerobic digestion, waste to energy, so that when we get to that stage of the food chain, we're making sure things are well disposed of. Um, So, let me just talk about a few other things uh, before I close here. We're, as I said, working on the next farm bill. It's always a mystery in Washington. Will we write it in December or we write it two years from now? You never quite know. But um, they're they're very actively, we're all very actively working on that. And when people ask me, how should I get involved, uh, what should I do? I mean, one thing to do, uh, not every member of Congress is working on the farm bill, but every member of Congress um, will take some votes around this, will take amendment votes around this. So getting to know who represents you, asking them what their food policy is, um, conveying to them what you care about. If you're a chef, it's about what you're hearing in your local restaurant. And um, you heard people say earlier today, chefs come with high credibility on the Hill, um, and we need to hear from all of them. If you own a business and you're watching what consumers want and the growth in certain parts of your business in your food industry, if you're a farmer, uh, where the markets are and where you're making money. I mean, every member of Congress needs to hear about that. We work on things in the Farm Bill policy. There's also rulemaking. I could have spent the whole conversation around rulemaking. It's a very complicated, sometimes less noticeable side of things, but you heard um, earlier talk about the gypsy rules. That's um, It's true. It takes more than three paragraphs, although John Oliver did a really wonderful, um, humorous uh, 20-minute segment on that. Um, the organic livestock rules. We were just talking about the chicken lawsuit. If we had written the organic livestock rules and the department wasn't delaying them right now, these things, some of them would be resolved because there would be standards for what that is. Anyway, there's a lot of rulemaking. Um, there's a chance to weigh in on all of that. And it's critically important, um, having organic standards that people can count on, not messing with those brands, not having some kind of nebulous natural and some of the other things that get talked about all the time. And while uh, uh, we don't know how this administration will play out when it gets to the Farm Bill, they've already started rolling back some of the regulations, and it's not surprising, perhaps, um, that everything isn't going our way. So I think it takes a careful eye. In the Appropriations Committee, we often write language to support the things that we care about, and sometimes the next year the language comes right back out. But that's another place to kind of watch what we're doing. So the only other thing I'm going to just say a couple of words about is around activism, because I... I think because Congress is so far out of step or often so far behind, Um, People don't think about it as like, what can I do? Can I make a difference to change things? And it's tough to find the vehicle. Like I said, you can't always tell where we are in the farm bill. A lot of environmental groups are getting much more engaged in this and they're doing scorecards of us. Food Policy Action keeps a scorecard on all of our votes and it's a good way to tell where we do all those things. But I have seen a huge difference in my eight years. Um, A lot of my colleagues kind of humored me when I first came in. Uh, yeah, that's okay. It sounds like something we should do. Eight years later, like I said, there's more Republican co-sponsors. People are hearing much more from people, um, and the GMO debate was actually kind of illustrative, and that's been talked over quite a bit today. But just a couple of things that are that are uh, that, that became clear through that, um, like you've heard earlier, there is a breakdown in trust of the consumer, whether it's to the Companies that they buy from, or trying to figure out who tells the truth, as as this um, we started out today, um, and that activism is coming through anyway. And I think it's very frustrating for people who work in science. They think, well, here's the facts. Why doesn't why doesn't the public agree with that? You know, it's just like that in politics. We think, here's all the facts. Why did they vote for that guy? Um, but but that's how it goes. And and sometimes the social media facts, what your friends tell you. Um, is more convincing, and and sometimes they're right. We've had reason not to trust a lot of industry over time, and there's reason people haven't always believed what what Big Ag is saying or certain food processors are are saying, and it's often been to the peril of those companies, and the GMO debate is a little bit like that, where you've had so many um, industries that oppose this. That's because my time is up, and I'm going to just finish this (laughs) up. But the fact is, you know, as uh, Campbell Soup said earlier today, they're just going to go out and label it. And sometimes it's just better to respect the consumer and say, there is a reason people want to know what's in their food. And they're not actually going to be that afraid if they see the label. You know, we see high fat labels and too much cholesterol. And frankly, we go out and buy it anyway. Um, And we can do that with um, descriptions of what's in our food. But some of the biggest fights we've had have been around labeling, whether it was bovine growth hormone in the milk or GMO labels today. And we're not done with that fight, and we don't know uh, where it will end up. But I can tell you, we got more pieces of communication to our office on GMO labeling from the first day I got into office than practically anything, well, then easily than anything else around the food system. And that's true of a lot of my colleagues who were very conflicted about how to vote about it because they heard from a lot of consumers. One of the reasons that is, I think, is not because everybody wakes up in the morning and thinks GMO labeling is their biggest concern or GMOs in their food. Frankly, they're worried about antibiotics in their food and they're worried about the environmental impact of their food. But it was the one thing they knew about that heard about the legislation, they wanted to get engaged, they wanted to do something about it. In fact, most People think a GMO label is something more significant than an organic standard, which it's just a tiny little piece of an organic standard, which is much more comprehensive. Anyway, I'm just saying the consumers are there. They're mad. They're not going to take it anymore. They're very engaged. And it's no longer time to just say, let's tell them they don't know enough you know, to know what's in the label um, and not do it. And I think um, the more that we're seeing that, the companies that are catching on to that, the policymakers who are going along with it and listening to their constituents, um, are finding you know, a good response at home. And the fact is, you know, like it or not, the food system is changing dramatically. That's mostly because of the marketplace, because of changing demand by the consumer. Um, it's a good thing for farmers. It's a good thing for sustainability. It's a great thing for our environment and the health of the farmer and the health of the people who work in farming. It's going to be better for all of our health. And I'm very... Um, Hopeful in a restrained way because it takes time and that's the plate tectonic part But that we're all working um, in the right place at the right time trying to do the right thing and I feel lucky to do it So thank you very much for having me here today
8: I want to start with something very central to this whole meeting and just ask the question What is natural? And so when you think of natural and what's being called natural and what's being sold as natural and all the things that you have preconceived about natural, do you think of the picture on the left or do you think of the picture on the right? I just happened to be flying from Belgium a couple days ago and I took this picture and I was like, God, that's beautiful uh, with, the, with the farms. And I was like, this, is, you know, this means this is kind of natural to me because I grew up on a farm. My family's in grocery business. So I became an architect, but now I'm back into farming. And so this to me feels natural and Maybe the thing on the, on the left is, so let's just go back to the definition. The most important part, not made or caused by humankind. Just keep that in mind. So the next one, what is farming? I work with a large retailer, one of the largest retailers, and we did a deep dive into their food chain. I said, we found out what the average age of an apple is in the United States from the date it was picked until the date it got in your mouth. Two months, four months, 14 months. And so, all of a sudden, I was confronted with a toddler-aged apple uh, that I had no idea how it could exist. Um, And we did the study of that apple and we found that it had lost all its antioxidants by the time it gets in your mouth. It's basically a ball of sugar and fiber. So, the question is what is farming? Farming is a business. Farming is activity or a business. They're going to sell you something and uh, they're gonna try to make money. And so, that's not optimizing towards a goal of nutrition or flavor either. What is GMO? Everyone in this room will be like, I know what GMO is because I'm really smart. Well, this is a study of the USDA government policy related to uh, related to uh, mandatory labeling practice. A lot of these things we argue about and they're highly political, but there was a control question. Down at the bottom, see if I can get the laser pointer to work, it says mandatory labels on food containing DNA. (laughs) About 20% of this crowd laughed. That's consistent with the American public. 80% of the American public would require mandatory labeling of food containing DNA. Everything (laughs) contains DNA. (laughs) That was once alive, so like, do you know what GMO is? What is the story about it? Uh, So let's just get to a quick answer. GMO is an organism whose genome has been manipulated in some way. So then you're like, oh, well, this started happening like in the 70s. Damn those people, they started messing with everything. Truth is, it started happening in 10,000 BC. So here's another kind of takeaway for you. Farming and the process of farming is always a conversation between man and nature, woman too, of course, and how we get resources, how we feed our populations, and all of the techniques we use to do that. So let's go with I buy local, right? A lot of people want to say I buy local. So I'm a National Geographic Explorer, <clears throat> and I did an expedition to this place called Almieda, Spain. This is the world's largest greenhouse. I wanted to see it because you can see it from space. I thought it would be amazing, and I got there and I found Moroccan slave labor. I saw that they were draining a fossilized aquifer. I saw that there's so much plastic that they lower the temperature in the region by one to two degrees, and that the sperm whale breeding grounds were being infiltrated with chemicals that cause algal blooms to where the phytoplankton don't live. I mean, it is an absolute nightmare. The stuff from this place is basically sold in, in the UK uh, and in Germany as grown in Europe. So when they go to the store, to whichever store, I won't pick on anybody, and they spend their money to make a better decision, they think is a better decision, it's, it's, uh, it's not. And so this is the hardest slide to digest, and we'll get through some other ones really quickly, but farming is not natural. It never has been. It never will be. It's about using our resources the most efficiently for the goals of human beings. Everything you've ever eaten, everything you will ever eat is GMO. Now, there are new techniques for manipulating GMO and we can talk about cisgenic and transgenic, but we have to get beyond this kind of like first stopper. And the last one is selling nature is the biggest con in food. I see it perpetrated all the time. Nature, nature, nature. Well, we don't sell nature. You don't eat nature. You eat products of a business of farming that are optimized with techniques and we have to get a lot better at how we use those techniques. But they can fool you because probably very few people, you know, it's like less than one percent of the population is involved in farming, but we also have to confront this. We have entered the age of the Anthropocene. If you believe in climate change, you believe in the Anthropocene, which is humans are now recorded in geological time and will be forever. This is scientific thought as geological force. We're starting to see the ability to modify mosquitoes to eliminate malaria, the ability to genetically alter humans to get rid of uh, MS and Parkinson's and all other kinds of things, expansion microscopy, meat grown in labs, milk grown with microbes. I'll go through a couple really quickly. So, if you've heard the word CRISPR, you're like, I know what CRISPR is, but you don't know that CRISPR is a battle that happened a long time ago. It was actually just settled in court like four months ago, and you know lawyers like to get paid. So it's been a while since CRISPR's been a thing, but that's an Im- ability to edit an organism. Past CRISPR, they invented gene drive. Gene drive is the ability to edit an organism and cause it to be present in the offspring of that organism. If you're following me, that's ecosystem engineering, and it's pretty crazy but you need to know it's here right now. So now they invented daisy chain, which is spread the edit across chromosomes. I know I'm talking a lot of science and a lot of people aren't scientists in here, but that means if you spread the edit across chromosomes, you can calculate when the edit leaves the population by the number of pairs that keep matching and the number of dilutions that keep happening. So now that we have the ability to edit, to inherit and to remove things from ecosystems, things like Lyme disease, things like malaria, And so this is going about as fast as the 1970s of computing was going and just about as few people know what's going on or the impacts that it's going to have as they did then. Designer cells and microbes. So on the company on the left uh, makes leather from a cell biopsy from a cow. Happens in New York. They produce their first fashion line with it. This is a cell biopsy from a living cow breeding up those cells, sheeting those cells and making leather that has no kill that has very little environmental impact. That has no blemishes. That can be transparent because they can stop the process of sheeting at any time. And I think I think that shirt's pretty expensive. But the point is, <laughs> we are now gaining a hold of biology by design, and so designer microbes. Uh, you know, we're looking at yeast. Yeast is the best chemical, the best little factory in the world. You can make amazing things with yeast with very little byproduct. And so we're going to start getting smaller in our ability to manufacture a lot of the things that we need to eat. Imagine yeast that manufactures palm oil. Imagine palm oil not deforesting the rainforest. So there are so many new options coming online as it starts to integrate with technology that we need to be aware of. We need to think critically through and not be told how to think. So I'm going to start going really fast, as if I haven't already. So strap in. This is my work. So I work on designer climates. This is the most beneficial climates in agriculture in blue, the least in, in red. We are slave to climate. This is why Californian farmers are now Mexican farmers. This is why China is the largest landholder of Brazil. This is why the Middle East gets its food from Central Africa. Climates don't know politics. Climates don't know ecosystems. And we chase them around for production. And my question is, can we start designing climate to design the thing we want, flavor and nutrition? So inside of my lab, I'll talk through the tech, and you can stop me afterwards. But if you know about the genome, a little bit, GMO, I know, 20%. uh, I'm talking about the phenome, or the phenomena. If I had a genetic twin, and he ate differently, had a little bit less stress, didn't travel so much for award ceremonies, he would look different than me. But he would probably also taste differently, but we won't ever know that that's the case. (laughs) The tomato, the tomato in Tuscany on the north side of the slope with the happy cow next door, that produces the nuttiest flavor, and you can't get this tomato anywhere else. False. The genes inside of the abiotic or biotic stress produce an expression of flavor. That flavor can be wildly different from the same genetic base pair. We're talking about a spicy lettuce, a sweet lettuce, a bitter lettuce, whatever you want, but it's about the stress that that plant comes in contact with. So in this, we design stress and try to decode it. We also fool around with things like ancient and rare genetics. These tomatoes, I I heard a presentation yesterday that was similar. These tomatoes uh, hadn't been grown commercially in 150 years. We're the only people in this room, I'm the only person, that's ever eaten this tomato. Supposedly the best sauce tomato in the world, but it didn't have good shipping characteristics. So it had higher lycopene content. It had better mechanical properties, but we didn't choose it because we couldn't scale it. And so we also ate it fresh because we don't know how to cook. Uh, But... we have an entire genetic inheritance we eat four cultivars of tomatoes in the united states there are over 10,000 cultivars of tomatoes in the world we have never selected for those one gmo of all time for flavor flavor saver tomato 1970s none of you eat it so what about the tools that we have and gearing them towards the actual things that we need so i started this project you know i don't know 2014 in a way but My lifetime in a way with two Dixie cups and some parts hacked out of uh, Home Depot and Bed Bath and Beyond We've progressed that all the way through to now with something we call the personal food computer Which you're gonna see a lot about but that's the rapid speed of development of this technology with a use that's hungry for it Tools that are available cheap sequencing cheap data storage cheap algorithms free algorithms from Facebook and, and, and those guys So we're going really really fast We at the same time launched a small lab in a closet. I hacked water lines through cable trays. I had to convince them I was building a water-powered computer in the media lab. They believed me. So that's that first one. And then by the end of it now, we have launched a whole new lab uh, that you can see here where we really started to share everything out. We started a project called FermenterBot with uh, Ariel Johnson, who's not here right now but from my team and used to be R&D with Restaurant Noma. We realized that fermentations are amazing and no one records them. And you can't share them very easily. And like every fifth batch may kill someone. So we were like, huh, maybe if we recorded the data about it, you could send that data to someone else inside of their fermenter. And then you could iteratively develop develop that cycle to to develop flavor. We're also building tree-sized food computers. This is a new thing. And I'll talk a little bit more specifically about the sponsor and the project in a second. So here's the idea. We first record. And that's what I've shown you. Then we digitize. So if you remember this Willy Wonka, where they shot the candy bar, they turned it into particles, and they, and they reconstituted it on the other side. In a world where Pokemon Go, like I was saying yesterday, has more users than Twitter and Tinder combined in a week, is a billion-dollar company without selling anything, can we use that kind of power of data to describe our food so specifically that we can literally send information about it rather than sending food all over the place, which causes, of course, a whole bunch of problems from nutrition and off-gassing and, and, and so on. That slide was part of me getting a job at MIT. That tells you how crazy they are. So this is the decode portion. So record, decode, recode. We're in decode. So we throw all kinds of data sets at these plants. We have atmospheric data sets on the left, CO2, O2, temperature, humidity, light, nitrogen, phosphorus, all of that. We have mineral data sets in the middle, so people say terroir, and I say minerals, oxygen, microbes, bacteria, uh, all the things, carbon. Like, I want to know what it is, and so we we follow that all the time. You wouldn't even believe how much we've learned in fundamental science just in the last few years about which plants take what things at what times. We dump and waste so much that the plants can't possibly absorb, and we need this knowledge. The last one is gas chromatography and mass spec. We take the plants, we do the flavor analysis, and we get all of the secondary metabolites. If that looks weird to you, that's flavor. That is flavor quantified. And so we've set that as a target. We also culture and sequence the plants regularly. This is a sequencing from the root zone to the tip of the plant. You'll see in the root zone, lots of stuff. Middle of the plant, not so much stuff. Leaf surface, not much stuff at all. We're trying to figure out which microbes at which time produce which expressions. The important thing is it's all linked from atmosphere to gas chromatography to biology and so on. We also use new techniques coming out of neuroscience. What you're seeing here is expansion microscopy. It's the first time in the world that we've ever seen a cell work. Like physically seen a cell work at this resolution at this cost, which is incredibly cheap. What you're looking at is the meristem of a, of a root, uh, it's, a, it's a root cell, and the meristem, we don't even know how it works. And now we can use techniques from the brain to start understanding how the plant is thinking. We back all this up with images. Images is, are the future of farming. And people talk about them a lot, microsatellites, satellites, drones, and so on. Right now there's no correlative data that goes back to that image got a ton of images, but we can't say that plant has uh, the best flavor characteristics, or, you know, we can't really say much, so we gather images because they're cheap, they are the way of the future, but they have to be correlated against all these other things to make any sense. That amounts to about three and a half million data points per plant per grow, okay? We call that a recipe, so stay with me here. I know, data and all this stuff, but it's going to get cool. So, we take that data, and we do machine learning. We have two sets. What did the plant do? What did we do to the plant? And then we use machine learning and AI in between. We actually took a stock trading algorithm from a hedge fund that's managed autonomously in a startup in San Francisco and applied their stock trading algorithm to our data sets. It trades instead of stocks and futures, it trades flavor. And so what you're seeing right here is a representation of it searching the white space for the things that we asked for. Farming will go through all of these iterations in an asynchronistic weather pattern to try to draw a correlation, and their mathematics are agronomic, history-based. It was yield, this was the climate, so that must be what plants do. We go the other way around, and we, we derive models and mathematics out of the plants using machine learning. As far as I know, kind of one of the first efforts in this space. So, we then take it forward, and we have a project called Digital Twin. We have a model, right, a mathematical model, and we start to create a simulation of that model. We can run that plant 10,000 times to say in real time. You know, I'm a <laughs> generation of farmer. My family was in the settlement of the West, came over as immigrants. My great-grandmother was a mail-order bride to a Kansas farm. I still go out there every day, and you know what they say when I talk to my friends that are farming? God, I wish I knew what the future was. Like, if I knew what I could change in moments while I could change it, if I had a spectrum of analysis, I would make better decisions. I might even plant different crops. I don't like planting corn. The corn market's in the trash. I would love to plant something else, but I have no idea, and I can't take the risk. Farming is all about risk mitigation. So then we go forward with this project. So we have these models, and we have these simulations. And then we thought, well, what if we took all the climate data we could get our hands on real climate data from the last 30 years, put it through our models, and then saw what it said about where we should grow. So people often see my work and they're like, oh, vertical farming, I've seen this, it's in Newark, blah, blah, blah. Let your mind be clear. This is new mathematics applied to existing climate data. This is the EPW weather database for 30 years of climate data. It created this map on the left-hand side. So this machine learning model derived that. That's where it said the highest quality cotton would be grown in the world. So that's total BS, right, because we don't know. The model told us it would do it if it was given these climate characteristics. Then we verified it against FAO climate data for the last 30 years and yield data of cotton. We were 75% correlated day one with some sophomores working on the software behind this. This tells you we can mine the world as a collection of attributes, of microclimates, of, of microbiomes, of all of these things that we can now see, and say this genetics should be planted in this place because it would produce the best flavor or the best amount of nutrition with the lowest cost of inputs, fundamentally changes agriculture. Agriculture is get your land, try to change it, make it better for producing the thing that, that you know you can sell. This is a catalog approach. So a couple projects I'll go through quickly. I work on cotton. Apparently the best quality cotton comes from Icelandic genetics. Who knew this? So now I build Iceland and India with these crazy guys and with Stella McCartney, and we're doing a project called Grow Your Own Blue Jeans. Uh, So you'll see that come out. We have a project with Ferrero. This is what initiated the hazelnut computer. Hazelnut is in a blight. So we are now studying the tree, not to grow it in a box, but to learn about the tree so that we can project into the field where it should grow, where it would get the right flavor characteristics, and where it would use the least amount of resource. So I gotta go super fast, I'm sure I'm way over time, but they never reset the clock, so I don't know. So it's fair on me. <laughs> We've deployed in refugee camp uh, refugee camp in Amman uh, through the World Food Program. You'd think the refugees would grow things they wanna eat because you aren't a refugee, and I'm not either, and I shouldn't decide what they grow. What did they grow? St. John's wort. Why did they grow it? Because it's a depression alleviant. Why didn't they use Zoloft or Paxil? Because it's not culturally appropriate. And so this guy makes money using this platform to address a local need that addresses mental health. I would never think of that. You in this room would never think of that. This is a platform. It's a platform and people write programs on it. So we're doing projects with NASA. I'll go through very quickly. If you haven't seen these things yet, this is a million heads of lettuce every week, 365 days a year. It sells at a three times premium and it's branded Toshiba. This is because in Japan, they are scared of their food. It's hurt their children. It's caused a lot of problems. They have radiation and all the other business. This is food with provenance. And so we got to get better. This is producing Ebola vaccine. Looks the same. It's using a tobacco plant, puts it under stress. This is the reason we got ahead of Sierra Leone, because we had backup in manufacturing of the pharmaceutical for Ebola vaccine and we get it from a plant. We get everything, we can get everything from plants. Pharmaceuticals, nutraceuticals, cosmetics, on down to lettuce. But this is reality. No one's sharing anything. Everyone, we're on a huge hype cycle, but no one says, hey, in 2014 we lost 20 million. In 2015 we lost 60 million. In 2017 we're we're standing to lose 100 million. No one's sharing anything. They're talking about better food for everyone except buy my IP and it's venture backed and I'm gonna make a ton of money and I'm gonna sell it to you on a royalty. It's too big for that, it's too complex for that. You saw my team, you see the work, it won't work. So I'm learning from this, which is what tech did to solve that problem. Elon, open sources the patents of Tesla. Apple, open sources the app developer language to compete with app markets. Facebook, open sources TorchNet and TensorFlow, their two most valuable AI tools that could have made them billions of dollars. And of course we've seen what the Human Genome Project did for open science and the advancement of human knowledge about ourselves. So this is probably one of the most controversial slides, I guess, for me anyway, but this is what I believe. The greatest crime perpetrated in agriculture was the siphoning off of knowledge from our academic universities, from our partnerships, from everything, and it created very few people with very little knowledge to be able to question the system. And so you end up with a whole bunch of people that get fed BS and believe it because they haven't seen the system, they haven't been a part of it. So we're going to smash that. This is the end of the project. I'm sorry, Mitchell, I'm sure I'm trailing. Like I said, son of a farmer, son of, a son and, and of two farmers, um, and grocers, and then a whole litany, but this isn't just me. This isn't just the US. The average age of a farmer in the US is 60. We have an entire population that has no clue about this stuff, and you can't record the experience of a 60-year-old farmer. You can't share it. You have to be there in the field. Far- plants grow best in a farmer's shadow. You go on down the world, this is Africa, half the population under 18, 80% don't want to be farmers, we we go for our policy to support small shareholder African farmers when all the kids have left and gone to to, to African megacities and want a different life, we have to be thinking about the next 1 billion farmers, so this is what we do, we put everything out online, open source, all the tools, all the code, it's not perfect. It's very scrappy. We have no money to do this part. I get paid to do scientific research. I don't get paid to run motley crews of kids all over the world. But we put it out on Wikipedia. We created a Reddit-style forum. You go to the forum. You ask your question. You're a chef. You ask a question about flavor. You're an electrical engineer. You ask a question about PCB boards. It doesn't matter. It's recorded, and it's a big conversation. We've scaled in the last year to 50 countries. 50 countries of active builders building these units, and creating what I call the digital world farm. These are cores of processing of data that will be held in perpetuity in a nonprofit, so that we can use machine learning, so that we can use AI, but it's for the global good, and it's transparent, and it cannot be questioned. And, well, it can be questioned. It can be questioned by everyone, but it can't be questioned in terms of is it true, is it okay, and all of those other things. Well, I put this out in schools. At first, I gave them a video game. They loaded a a plant, well, they had sensors and they had things they could change. They loaded a recipe that some other kid grew digitally and then they planted the plant. And then they planted it physically. And as they reenacted the old climate, they got curious. One kid said to me, well, CO2 is dangerous, right? Killed all the CO2 in the unit, plant dies, kid learns a lesson, but when they harvest the data, so they harvest it virtually and they harvest it physically, it comes with all these new data points. And we can search those data points for things that scientists never would have done. We never would have killed the CO2 because we think we know the answer of what would happen. So we end up mapping the expression of any genes, any genetic information, rare, ancient, hybrid, non-GMO, GMO, GMO, doesn't matter. We also then teach them to code with it. So I'm going to go real quick. I get these videos sent to me all the time. Don't know these kids, never talked to them, never gave them money. Building this technology does cost money. It's not easy for teachers to teach, but it's happening anyway. Kids want to be involved, but they want a 21st century interface. And they want a climate in their classroom 24 days, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year where they can iterate on it and share it and create knowledge. We hold hacker camps. These kids go home and call themselves Homebrew Food Computer Club. Remember Homebrew Computer Club? This was all the crazies in their basements that no one had any idea what they were going to do. And you know what they said? It's too expensive. It'll never scale. It's going to be a calculator. No one's going to want a calculator in their home. And they didn't even imagine we'd have it in our pocket and how many things we'd been doing in the next 20 years. We are in the moment of digital bio that the world has never seen. And we need to use those tools to create something amazing. So the last thing, I think, you know, this is just a joke, but... I had a chef from the Bass Culinary Center, a professor, working last week in my lab to create a menu, to create an experience using a fermenter, fermentation bot, using a food computer, designing an entire menu with all kinds of misos, all kinds of craziness, kojis and things. And I didn't know if I should serve it, but he told me that it was okay. And we create things like that. And I think this is what you can see happening in the future, which is, this is natural. It doesn't seem natural. You don't see it as natural, but these are processes that are happening all around us all the time. So I'll just close with this. What is natural? Natural is whatever you make out of it. Thank you.
1: Uh, I told you that would be provocative and you probably have a few comments and questions and I'm going to welcome to join me and Caleb on the stage, Jennifer Kuzma, Uh, who's going to help us understand a little bit about that, to digest it, if you will, and also to talk about how societies digest new technologies. Jennifer's a distinguished professor and co-director of the Genetic, Genetic Engineering and Society Center at North Carolina State University, also an expert in biotechnology policy, emerging technologies, nanotechnology, and understanding or helping how societies, how communities understand what you just heard, and then we'll open it up to some questions. I imagine there are a few, or comments. Jennifer, I'm, uh, so okay. what do you think? I start. What do I think? Wow. wow.
9: He's doing a lot of really cool stuff. <laughs> um, what I've, uh, for the past 20, 25 years, I've observed the uh, advent and sort of the introduction of GMOs into the food supply. And throughout that history, um, I think we've learned some lessons that are really important uh, about the integration of technology in society. And I think some of those lessons are that technologists uh, should be thinking upstream in their work about the downstream attitudes that people may have about the technology and whether or not people would want the technology. After all, people and citizens and consumers, however you wanna frame it, are taxpayers funding the research. And so a lot of my work has centered on how do we give people a voice throughout the governance system of food and agriculture and food production, and how do we ask them what kind of technologies they would want to see integrated into their food um, and how they would like to see them integrated and regulated and overseen. So I've been very interested in governance systems and how they engage uh, citizens and stakeholders And from the lesson of GMOs, we've learned that maybe it's not wise to start with products first that are gonna benefit primarily farmers. Um, Maybe if people had a voice, they would start with some of the uh, nutritional or taste or safety aspects of the technology. Uh, Because now we're seeing a, a, a society where GMOs are being largely rejected by a significant proportion of the population. Not everybody. Uh, and, and I personally am not against genetic engineering, but I do have some concerns about the informed consent of people who are eating the foods and whether they know that what they're eating and have a choice in what they're eating, as well as some of the aspects of regulation um, and, and oversight. And so gene-edited crops right now are sort of stuck in this um, uh, neverland of whether or not they're going to be regulated. And there's some policies out there in the Federal Register that are being uh, Considered by the federal agencies for whether or not to include gene editing in regulation of GMOs or not Um, somehow they don't fit the definition of recombinant DNA genetic engineering and so the agencies the federal agencies and I'll stop here after this um, (laughs) FDA USDA and um, EPA are all considering this right now, so if you're interested in getting more information about what they're considering and what the rules are. I can help you, you know, find the Federal Register notice. I think the comment periods are over. But one place where you can have a voice is in that process of the Federal Register. It's not the best, (laughs) you know, form of democratization of of the system, but it is one place where consumers and citizens have a voice. Um, so, So that's my interest, is how do we democratize science, not just from the who's doing the science, but... What products are we choosing, and how are we governing them in in society?
1: Well, and so that makes me ask, in in a society where people don't know how to make a soup, let's say, and where, you know, fifth grade science might be the the average, maybe that's a generous average of of information, how does a voice have any authority besides the kind of gut neurons we saw yesterday in Jonas Kaplan's diagram uh, to have this conversation? I don't know what he just said. I really don't.
9: You know, and, and my philosophy is that's okay. We're talking okay, over you like you're not my, sitting here. <laughs> my philosophy is that's Just okay. Notes. So my bias is that experts aren't the experts are not the only ones that should have a voice. Mm-hmm. Experts come with the same biases that non experts do. I mean, scientists when they view data they come with certain biases, and how they interpret that data is colored by their cultural worldviews. So cultural cognition and cultural theory applies to scientists just as it applies to citizens and consumers. And so I've participated in a lot of public um, kind of wine cafes and, and science forum where if you give people just a little bit of information, you know, 15 minutes or so, um, they can have the most informed discussion about these things. So, I'm of the attitude that you don't have to be fully educated on you know the nuances of gene editing and um, recombinant DNA in order to have a say in what's done with your tax dollars in the food supply. <laughs> so,
8: so like I said, I was supposed to be provocative yeah. to you. And
9: I'm being don't provocative. Don't kill the messenger. Too, so. <laughs> um,
8: you know, control of information is an industrial philosophy. Uh, it's, it's gone. There is no control of information. There is no control of the story. There is no telling people how they should work with a technology. CRISPR-Cas9 is easy. There are kids doing it. Like it, it, I've seen hack your own microbiome clinics. Like We're talking about a, a, usually a population of people that aren't going to have their minds changed right now. I don't spend any time there. There's a, gro- There's a huge number of young people They know how to access information. They know how to network. They know how to share it. You won't tell them how to think about anything. They get it in their hands, they start to build it, they start to hack it, they start to understand it. And you know what, the ethical questions rise. And they say, oh, well maybe cisgenic versus transgenic. How many people in this room know what what that means? Editing in genome or editing a frog into corn? That's what that means. And it's, it's a fundamental thing in GMO. All of you care about GMO. None of you know anything about it. No, I'm sorry. None of you know the answer to the simple question, are you editing in genome or out of genome? And what does that mean? Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh graders are starting to know this. This will be native. And so I'm, what I'm saying is to, to cause the conversation, do, put up a bulletin board on the internet You'll get, a, you'll get a few trolls, but you'll also get a whole bunch of people that have a lot of questions that want to answer them with each other. It's the network economy now. Agriculture is an industrial economy. It is going to move towards a network economy just like everything else. And so I think this idea that there would be gatekeepers uh, is gone. No one trusts anything, and so they have to see it. I, think I see a reaction this, coming. Uh,
9: yeah, I... I, I, I I see your point. Um, I somewhat disagree in that the gate, gatekeepers, I mean, we saw what happened with the, with the campaign, right? And yeah. in, in, in our election is that when you're getting information, even through a social network, it can be slanted in particular ways and, and how you frame and present that information, uh, who you listen to, how the person giving that information presents themselves. I think there is control out, of, course, of information, right. even when it is in an open platform like that. Um, so i i I somewhat disagree and i also think about the older generations and and kind of the equity of that you know some people don't use the internet all that much and and so is that fair to older generations or to the generation coming in the future is is that what they would want with with what's what's going on so i i somewhat disagree with like oh i mean I, i see your point the democratization of technology and information um, helps, but I don't think it gets us all the way. I think you still need kind of honest brokers to interpret that information.
8: Who's an honest broker in food?
9: Well, that's the that's yeah. the difficult part. Yeah. I mean, there isn't and,
8: any, and no one believes that anymore. Right,
9: and there's not a single honest broker, but the more people and diverse voices you have at the table, the more that I think you're going to get to the truth by a collection of different viewpoints. Um, so.
1: I'd like to ask in the work you're showing, where does the ethical consideration come in to the things that you do? I I know MIT, and you were involved recently, hosted a Forbidden Science Summit um, of things that are not allowed to be done but are happening in places. And so I'm wondering, because you can, do you? It it would seem that way.
8: So here's an interesting story. We we throw a conference, it's on the internet, you could probably find it, it's called Forbidden Research. Keynoted by Edward Snowden, Uh, So that tells you exactly where it's going. Uh, And they talk about geoengineering. And they talk about the fact that they can change the color of water right now. They could make water whiter and cool the earth. Now, if they did that, they may usher in a new ice age. But the point is, they can do it. And so we're at the brink of so much science that we can do. And the people that can do, don't talk about it. And so George Church's protege who leads a group in the, in the lab now called Sculpting Evolution, his name is Kevin Esfeld. Kevin was one of the developers on gene drive, and now on Daisy Chain and, and all of these things. He talks about what he does. And his colleagues say, why are you telling the muggles? <laughs> They're going to come with pitchforks. But that's an ethical decision right there, right. for him to be straightforward, for him to show what's going on, to, to build awareness, to build consensus. He's working with a community in Nantucket right now to deploy these modified rats, these rats that cannot carry Lyme disease. Do you know how much human tragedy is attached to Lyme disease? The community has decided they want edited rats because they have their family members that have become arthritic and all the horrible things with Lyme disease. So it's, it's by creating that conversation, by being honest, and putting it out there without fear of retribution. but there, I can tell you there's a ton of fear of retribution. You might see me as a tech warrior, or like a GMO warrior right now. I'm a knowledge warrior. I just want the truth. Hmm. I just want the most people to have the truth so that they can make their own mind up.
1: But we've learned from our research, from the conversations yesterday, that, that trust is, is really key to all of this, and there are plenty of valid data points to distrust what you're doing, what yeah. companies are saying, what individuals might believe—we are. How does that? What, what? How many data points do you need to to reimagine the trust to rebuild that trust?
9: Boy, that's a that's a difficult one. <laughs> um, trust is a huge factor in all perception studies, and we've done our own surveys. Of GMOs and in, in the United States, and trust comes out really strong, obviously. And people distrust industry, obviously. Um, they also, you know, distrust gov- government, and they tend to trust people who. Um, are there family, friends, uh, people they've developed who relationships? Could, but who could
1: be crazy, horrible people also, and <laughs> sometimes <and> who could <laughs> well, be horrible people also? No, I totally
9: agree. And sometimes
1: prove themselves tol- to be. I
9: totally agree. I'm not saying it's right. They also tend to t- trust university scientists and, and engineers um, more than other stakeholders. So, hey. and, and Caleb and I, uh, you Revenge know, Kevin's, of the nerds. Kevin's yeah. work is is a, is an example on um, Nantucket with the genetically engineered mice that have a gene drive that would drive down the population. Then. Um, in order to combat Lyme's disease. His example is a great example of how you might build trust because he's been in the community talking to people at the very beginning of the research and being responsive, which is one of the principles of responsible innovation, responsive in the work he's doing to the concerns from the community. So he's building hmm. a relationship.
8: Imagine in the 1970s if we'd have done that he's, with GMO. He's earning I, trust.
9: You don't get trust, you earn it. I yeah. mean, I think we all know that in relationships. And so I think it's time to start building relationships um, with uh, communities about the work that you're going to be doing Well, perhaps that's
1: the transformational nature of the social network, the, not the sharing Absolutely. of information as much as the building of exactly. some meaningful relationship. And I think we'll stop there. Thank you so much uh, for sharing this with us.
10: Hi, good morning, everyone. I'd like to first introduce Mitch Baranowski, who is going to be our our host and facilitator for the rest of uh, the morning here today, before the break and after the break. Um, Mitch is... um, a wonderful, smart guy who told me this morning that he's been studying the conscious consumer since 2006. So that's 11 years or so of uh, thinking about what people want to do with their money and how they want to do it and, on, and spend it on what. But he grew up uh, uh, in Texas and uh, learned about farming thanks to his grandparents who started there as sharecroppers. And Uh, Then, finally, went on to become contract farmers for Del Monte. Mitch, however, is a a perennial idea guy, um, a design thinker who is constantly pushing us on the conference team to uh, expand our limits and our understanding of the ways that we can engage you, the audience. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Mitch Baranowski.
11: Thanks, Karen. Thank you so much. Um, so honored to be here. What do you get when you transgenetically edit a really loud frog into an ear of corn? A frog horn. Get it? That's, that's the best joke I could make up during Caleb's presentation. I know. You are all phenomes. You are all all all-natural phenomes. We're going to create a designer climate in this room this morning. Are you ready? (laughs) We're going to move from talk to action. And I am going to help nudge us down the road a piece with the help of this esteemed panel of experts who are going to inspire you with short remarks in turn. So let's get to it, shall we? First up, we're going to hear from... Hari Pulapaka, and Hari is the executive chef and co-owner of a restaurant, an acclaimed restaurant, Cress Restaurant in DeLand, Florida, and he's also not just a chef and co-owner of this restaurant, but a full-time tenured associate professor of mathematics and computer science at Stetson University. Hari?
12: Good morning, everyone. How are you? I can't tell you how... uh how much of an honor this is for me, because I've been coming to this event for several years now with my wife, the real doctor in the house, Dr. Pulupaka. Uh, And every time I come, I leave with so much more than what I came with. So my hope today, when I was tasked with being a provocateur to you, is to maybe not be that, because I feel like the morning has already had that effect perhaps on us, but rather leverage the idea that in this room, we are consumers. And uh, when we speak of what will consumers want and how do they think, perhaps we can just look, at, look within ourselves in trying to answer that question. So what I'm going to present to you um, is what I'm calling a 21 point Jiffy loop solution to uh, <laughs> the idea of trying to promote and understand better how consumers think in the hopes of leveraging their, their uh, power to make positive changes in our food system. So I began with the word consume. So it's seven letters, C-O-N-S-U-M-E. Uh, I'm kind of a nerd, as you can tell. Uh, and then I said, okay, well, if you divide seven into 21, you need three. And so I will take each letter and try to give you three words that to me evoke, uh, to me, a better sense of perhaps trying to understand how we think as consumers and perhaps what we react to in terms of food especially, right? So C for cerebral thought-provoking, deep, uh, not shallow, coming from a place of mind. I come from a place of abstraction. I can't help it, I'm a mathematician. So when I think of things, when I have the luxury and time, I always come from a place of abstraction. And so hence, this is my approach to trying to give you some ideas. Choice, See for choice. Of course, this came up a number of times yesterday. Consumers want choice. So when we think of solutions and we think of ways of advocating for a better, a better food system, we can't be uh, mono-alphabetic, for lack of a better term. We must have several alphabets on the table. We must be polyalphabetic. There must be lots of choices that all make sense and that all try to achieve the same general goal. See for clarity, of course. The mathematics is clear, and there can be no doubt. Uh, in the same way, I think, our solutions, our ideas have, must have a sense of clarity. Uh, and what that means, of course, differs from how one approaches clarity, how one defines clarity, but at the very least, from the outside looking in, there should be a sense of clarity, there should be a sense of transparency. Oh, O for objective, of course. Uh, I think objectively, generally speaking. I come from a place of subjection, of course. I'm an individual, I have, I have a gut. Uh, so even though I say that I come from a place of abstraction, I also come from a place of gut. So, but yet, in trying to better understand our society from a, consum- from a consumption point of view, I think we must be objective. Organic our our movement that's been, you know, in place for some time now uh, should understand when something is organic, something is has a life of its own and sort of we need to find ways to get out of the way when that's the case and not try to sort of, you know, impose ourselves and our, our biases on what's already happening in a, happening in a good way. Open, naturally, Uh, this has come up a number of times this, this, this past two days, day and a half. We have to be open to a variety of ways of thinking about the same thing. And for nudge, The really nerdy part of me, you know, Professor Richard Taylor just walked away with the 2017 Nobel Prize in Economics for his groundbreaking work and and pioneering work in nudge theory. And the word nudge came up when Mr. Kahn spoke yesterday. And he he alluded to the idea that you can't force this kind of stuff. This kind of stuff takes a long time. Uh, You have to nudge the consumers. So, yeah, I think we do have to nudge our consumers. And by by nudge our consumers, I mean nudge ourselves as well at the same time. We have to be nimble. We can't be steadfast. We have to be nimble. We have to be adaptive. We must nourish. Of course we nourish as chefs. We do that because we love to do that. It's what we know, what we do really well. Um, We must nourish the ideas as well. As for science, of course, you know, we must be scientific as much as we can be. Uh, And the previous session sort of took it to another level, clearly. Uh, But there is that. You must you must have be aware of the science of, of how things happen. Satisfy. This came up yesterday with Chef Barber's panel. Coming leading from a place of taste. Leading with taste. We must satisfy. Satisfy the palate, satisfy the soul, satisfy the mind at the same time. Sustainable. Of course, it's the S word. We all like to use it. But sustainable, not about the, the the, not, not the idea of the food system being sustainable, of course, but rather the activism being sustainable. You know, they, We don't need Band-Aid solutions to things. We need sustainable ideas themselves, sustainable solutions themselves. Understanding, urgency. Notice I'm picking up the pace because I feel like I'm, I'm firing a ticket. It's 45 seconds. <laughs> Understanding, urgency, unambigu- unambiguity right? We must, we must understand, we must have a sense of urgency as I'm having now, and we must be unambiguous, must be clear. Uh, motivation, media, mindfulness. Probably the most important one for me, mindfulness. Motivation, we, should, we need to understand what motivates us, what motivates consumers. We must take f- the fullest advantage of media because they do that to us, you know, Take the adva- I think media is at a critical mass, has reached in terms of its, pos- its real, its real uh, potential, if you will, for making the kinds of things that we want to see in the world. And last but not least, education, empowered, and efficient. Of course. And I'll leave you with this literary sort of mathematical fact, because I must, you know, when you give talks in mathematics, you, it's customary to give a theorem and a proof. I won't subject you to that. But I will tell you that the number 21, the Jiffy Lube number 21, is kind of a cool number in so many ways. It's our wedding anniversary date, of course. Uh, It's my wife's birthday date, of course. So those are cool already. But if you add the integers 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, which are 7 in all, you do get the number 21. It's a Fibonacci number. It's the the smallest non-trivial Fibonacci number whose digits are also Fibonacci digits. So there you have it. Thank you. (laughs)
11: Thank you. Thank you, Hari. Uh, you, you had me at polyalphabetic. Next, let's hear from Pam Cook. Pam leads the Tisch Center for Food Education and Policy at Columbia University, which focuses on the connections between a just, sustainable food system and healthy eating. Please welcome Pam.
13: Thank you. Um, So my big idea that I want to present is nourishing education, cultivating tomorrow. Many times during the summit, we have heard people say that we're the choir. We care about good food already, and how do we get more people to care about it? I propose that we build on the movement that is catching fire across our country and around the globe to make broad nutrition education that is experiences gardening, cooking, learning about the food system, understanding food and health, and working towards food justice, something that is baked in to kindergarten through 12th grade education. I'm extremely fortunate to work closely with Dr. Joan Gusau, who received the Leadership Award last night. So for those of you who are at the award dinner, I'm going to be putting her comment about, put, about inoculating our kids into practice. When food is integrated into the curriculum throughout schooling and is experiential, as well as thoughtful and analytical, this can accelerate the momentum for people to eat fresh, local, and delicious food that is less highly processed. Let's be clear. Today's children are still steamrolled with sophisticated marketing for processed food and ubiquitous availability of irresistible and relatively inexpensive, inexpensive sweetened beverages, snack foods and fast foods. And this kind of education has been percolating for over 100 years. In a 1922 book by someone named Mary Schwartz Rose who started our program, she said, while many things contribute to health, sleep, fresh air and exercise for instance, the foremost consideration is food. This is recognized today as never before. Remember, this is 1922. And those who regard their own welfare and desire to give their children the best possible equipment for the stress of modern life are asking how to choose food wisely. So many kinds of food are displayed in our markets, and so many placards offer warnings or advice about what to eat. That was 1922. In a 1959 booklet called Promising Practices for Nutrition Education in the Elementary School, it starts out by saying a third-grade class asked ask the question, where does our food come from? They learned from having a father come in who was a grocer and taking field trips to different places around the community as well as putting into practice in their school cafeteria. Joan Gussow in 1980 had a piece in the teacher's college record called Food and Nutrition Education a Redefinition in which she wrote, ready or not, nutrition educators may simply have to take on the food supply issue since no one else is doing so. But telling the whole truth, and telling the whole truth takes open conversations with everyone, teaching people about who eats and who does not and why, about what ought not to be eaten as well as what ought to, will make nutrition a politically charged subject. A subject that more than mathematics or reading or even history or social studies will collide early on with powerful economic interest to teach the right things. Simply to ask the right questions is likely to prove unsettling to the largest single industry in the United States. However, not to do so is to, con- is to continue to settle for ineffectiveness. So I want to talk about three goals. The first is to have great, broad nutrition education in schools. That includes experiences with cooking and gardening that students can have. Um, let me tell you about going to a school in Chicago just last week. The students were connecting their English and social studies standards to learning about the three sisters and making succotash and then figuring out what ingredients they wanted to add to that and negotiating it as a a group for what they wanted to add to their recipes. Second, we need to have excellent school meals that are connected to the cafeteria. My doctoral research, which was with Joan too, was having kids cook in the classroom what was served in school lunch. When they do that, they eat what's in school lunch. And for those of you who don't know, New York City starting this school year is now having universal free meals for all its children. And that's starting to build where everybody feels included and everybody can get a school lunch. Third, gardening experiences give kids great opportunities to get to grow food, experience as food, and harvest and eat it. Um, this I, this I want to share um, a story of one of my doctoral students. And what she did is she asked kids about what they wanted to, to, whether they wanted to eat salad or not. And one boy looked at her and said in question, like, well, of course, who wouldn't want to eat salad? And that's the kind of things that happen when kids get to cook food. Um, And finally, then as kids get older, if they have these experiences, they are able to take on things, such as thinking about what are the pros and cons of pesticides and what we want to do. So what we want is it to be baked into education, that we're talking to our teachers and our principals and everyone in education. So these kinds of experiences where kids get to grow food, cook food, think about food analytically, think about all these scientific questions are just part of what they do in education. Thank you.
11: Suffering succotash, Pam. Thank you. Some inspiring goals. Uh, next, uh, we're going to hear from Olivier de Schutter uh, via video, because he, unfortunately he, he couldn't make the, the trip from Europe, but he, he did take the time to share a few thoughts uh, via video. Olivier was the UN special rapporteur on the right to food, and he's written a lot about economic and social rights and, and that intersection with food and he's one of the 2017 James Beard Foundation Leadership Award honorees. Let's hear from Olivier.
3: Power is a fantastic title, I think, for the Food Summit uh, 2017, and I'm very grateful to Mitchell Davis and and others who thought about this title, this theme for this Food Summit. Um, I think power is a topic that is usually not enough discussed when we speak about food systems reform. And misconceptions about power are plentiful. We think of power as necessarily central, necessarily to be exercised top-down, necessarily to be monopolized by some and thus denied to others. And we think of power as something solid, something concentrated in a small number of hands. But in fact, power can be understood very differently. It can be understood as liquid. It can be understood as something that exists wherever people decide to exercise their rights, to claim for others to be held accountable for their actions, and wherever people invent solutions in order to overcome the obstacles that they encounter. I'm struck today by two things. First of all, that the center of gravity of innovation in politics in the US has shifted to the city level, to the municipal level, sometimes to the state level. And that it is at those levels that food systems are gradually being reformed by some enlightened politicians, but especially by citizens taking their fate in their own hands. For example, many cities have joined the the Fearless Cities Network, um, promising to do things uh, against climate change, for sustainable food systems, for example, that the government is not demanding that they do, and indeed, that the government sometimes actively seeks to obstruct. I'm struck by the fact that many cities have joined the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact, demonstrating a willingness to develop sustainable food systems at local level. I'm also struck by the fact that many ordinary women and men today are trying to invent solutions at a grassroots level. They develop vegetable gardens with their neighbors, join short food chains, community supported agriculture. They choose very carefully whom they buy the food from because they want to know their farmer and make sure that they are making a choice that is politically responsible. And that is how gradually the food system is being changed, not by decrees adopted by the federal government, not by new regulations necessarily um, intervening, but by Ordinary women and men understanding that, have, that they have a role in shaping the food systems. I believe this is very important to capture the citizens' energy. I believe it can be a way to bridge the gap that has grown between elected politicians on the one hand and ordinary citizens on the other hand, particularly if we can develop means to make food democracy a reality. Food policy councils, as they've developed mushrooming since the past 25 years at city level, at state level sometimes, and that are such an impressive phenomenon across America. Um, Or simply the involvement of parents in deciding what menus the school canteens shall offer for their children. Um, There are many other ways in which food democracy can become um, an everyday feature of our lives and in which power, rather than being left to be exercised by a handful of professional politicians, can become um, exercised by all of us, eaters, um, uh, producers, co-producers, really, um, who are participants in the food system. So I would like to, to thank you for choosing this, this title, and I very much hope that it will lead to fruitful discussions um, today.
11: Yes. We thank Olivier for that. Uh, Each of us does have a role to play in changing our food system, uh, which we will get to in the next uh, half of uh, this session together. Uh, If you've ever uh, given up meat for Monday, then you know the Monday campaigns, perhaps. It's my pleasure now to welcome Peggy New, the president of the Monday campaigns, a global movement aimed at encouraging healthy, sustainable behaviors. Peggy. Peggy.
14: So I am really excited to um, share some news that happened yesterday here in New York City. Um, Mayor de Blasio hold, held a press conference downtown where he announced that Meatless Monday is being introduced in 15 schools in Brooklyn with the hope of rolling it out um, next year. And the second thing that he said it was that he was going to start practicing um, Meatless Monday at home with his family and also in Gracie Mansion. Now, um, that doesn't seem to be too difficult because he shared with us that his kids and his wife are vegetarian. (laughs) Um, However, um, he did say something that I think goes to the core of what the Meatless Monday concept is all about, and that is, he said, we're starting a new habit, and it's something I'm really looking forward to. And so I'd like to talk about... um, Meatless Monday and how it can help create habits, and also how it can um, create a sense of citizenship. Um, Before I get into that, though, I did want to uh, talk a little bit about the history, because there's actually another big anniversary. It's the 100th anniversary of the original concept of Meatless Monday, and this was during World War I, and it was part of the Food Will Win the War initiative. And basically, uh, citizens were called on to do their patriotic duty, um, to give up meat once a week, and there was also a Wheatless Wednesday. And the idea was to conserve food um, for the troops, and um, victory gardens were also practiced during that time. Um, It was then um, brought back in World War II because it was so successful, and then the modern Meatless Monday um, came back in 2003, and it was founded by Sid Lerner, a former advertising executive, and... um, and the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. So when it did um, come back, it was back for a very different reason um, than how it was practiced and why it was practiced during the World Wars. Rather than not enough, we really have a problem now of too much. And in the case of meat, that is really creating very serious consequences. Um, You know, for health, uh, when it just first started in 2003, it was about saturated fat in the diet. But since then, the body of research that's been developed linking a high-meat diet with obesity and diabetes and cancers has really grown. And as the rest of the world starts to adopt our high-meat diet, those problems are being exported um, around the world and the second part of it is just the impact of meat on the environment Um, meat uh, production takes up an enormous amount of arable land and water and animal agriculture actually contributes fifteen percent of all greenhouse gas emissions so experts say if this if we continue on this course Um, the meat consumption will double by 2050, and it will be very hard, if not impossible, to achieve the um, climate goals set out in Paris. Um, So partly because of those reasons, um, you know, the Meatless Monday has really grown. It's now in 40 countries. It's practiced by restaurants, chefs, home cooks, and um, it's really been carried forth on the back of these advocates because there are so many reasons to cut back on meat. Um, And, uh, you know, whether it's the environment or health or animal welfare, um, but a core part of it has really been the leadership of chefs because when it comes down to it, it's food and it has to taste good. And one of the things people really struggle with is like what to make if I'm not going to have meat, what what do I eat? Um, So that's part of what we do um, with Meatless Monday. So back to habit and citizenship, um, there are a couple of things about the Meatless Monday concept that um, make it very powerful. One is it's so simple. You just say Meatless Monday and you get it. Two, it's all about baby steps. We're not trying to make everyone vegetarians and vegans just one day a week. Um, and then the, the third thing is really about Monday. Um, it, Monday fits effort, effortlessly in the weekly cycle, which really dictates our planning and, and, um, um, you know, menus and promotional cycles and, um, and also, um, The the Monday is really the day that people are most open to doing healthy behavior. We've done a lot of research. People search for health information on the Internet. They start diets. They start exercise regimens. So basically, by hitching a health behavior of going meatless um, to the week, you can reach people when they're most open to buy, and then you can sustain that healthy behavior over time. So um, I think though to to close, one of the most um, um, powerful aspects of Meatless Monday is that it provides a social context for change. So basically because it's a specific time and people are together in a specific place, you can do it together. Um, and even if you're not physically together, the fact that you're taking this small step um, with people all over the world, from Iran to Israel to to, um, to Kuwait, um, you can feel connected in this common mission um, uh, of this shared rit- ritual. So anyway, these problems can sometimes feel overwhelming, but I think what Meatless Monday shows us is, you know, if together we take small steps, we can have a big impact on a Lot of different issues. So thank you.
11: Thanks, Peggy. Thank you, Peggy. T G I M. Chef Phil Jones is an alum of the um, James Beard Foundation's Chef's Boot Camp, but he really works at the intersection of um, high quality, nutritionally dense food and community growth. And He does that with a sense of justice and opportunity for all. With City Food Community Concepts, he is endeavoring to make this mission real in his hometown of Detroit. Please welcome Phil.
15: Thank you. Thank you. And um, I have to get my ducks in a row. Being a good Jesuit product here, hold on a second. Um, Let me go here. Who's familiar with Afrofuturism? There's a few of you out here. Um, Very quickly, 1993, uh, a brother, uh, Mark Derry, a journalist, coined the phrase Afrofuturism, really referring to a comic book genre. But since then, it has become so much more. It is actually a way of looking forward to some systems inside of Afrocentric world to move us forward. And inside of these conversations, there's there's literature, there's art, there's a lot of things, and food was never really a big part of it. So what we're trying to do with City Food Community Concepts, my wife and I, are we're trying to add food to this conversation. So why is this important? Black food is jacked up. And let me back up real quick. I have to apologize in advance for a couple of things. One, I'm a chef, so I'm gonna to try to not drop any F-bombs, but it might happen. <laughs> and, and two, I'm, I am weather-affected, and I just ask you to bear with me, because I just have something physically that happens with weather changes. Um, black food is messed up. Black food in America is, is in a sad state of affairs. I am a living example of that. I'm a chef who cooks food and loves food, but I don't have a really good relationship with it as do as many of black folks do. Same thing is going on in Africa. Africa has a lot of food issues, and we need to fix these things. So as we look back, we look in these both of these food systems have something that's very common, and that's the diaspora: the ripping of a people from a land and moving them somewhere else those who remain had their future taken away and those who were taken away had their past taken away so that has created a lot of issues unemployment um, obesity health issues land wealth issues and so we need to actually address these things so what we have to do is we have to create some kind of therapeutic intervention we have to get in there jump in there and then treat this like an ailment In Dealing with someone as sick, you have to get to them and you have to stop the bleeding. So that's the triage. Get in, stop the bleeding. Then there's a treatment portion. And inside of this treatment portion, you look to see what are the causes and you create a plan of action. And the third portion of, of, the, of this intervention is the healing and the regrowth portion. So with that said, both food systems have this common, goal, common issue in the diaspora. And so you can't fix either food system without fixing the other at the same time. So what we're trying to do is to look forward in new systems to address both food systems at the same time. So inside of this, this is the weather part, sorry about this. Inside of this, we're trying to develop systems that work for folks. And so we have, with me and my wife today, we have an example of that. And this is young man over here is Akello at he is the leader of a group of folks that we have, we call it the Good Food Ambassadors. These young folks go into the grocery stores and they talk to people as they're actually shopping to help them make food decisions before it's too late. Once the food hits, the, hits your refrigerator, it's there, it's gonna be consumed. So Kelo and our young folks go in and, and actually intervene. We also have with us Brenda Tuma today. Um, Brenda is uh, works with the USDA and she is moving forward the, the, the SNAP issues and we're dealing with the future of food through the SNAP um, program. You know what, folks? I'm sick. My community's sick. My family's sick. Our world is sick. Black folks were ripped away from the land, and we're suffering now. And so Afrofuturism is a way of addressing these issues with a certain sense, thank you, with a certain sense of of place and being. The work that we do with City Food Community Concept is based on the belief that we can change our food systems by using tools that we're given and, and that we have available to us. While our system is broken, there are a lot of wonderful shining lights, and these two young folks are examples of that. Inside of African food, inside of black food, there are recipes, there are ingredients, there are traditions, and all of these things exist, but they're not being promoted and given the space that they should be given. You would never know that there's grand food um, histories inside of Africa. The French aren't the only ones that cook, can cook. The Italians aren't the only ones that can cook. The Spanish aren't the only ones that can cook. And all of these things have been influenced by African food. So what we're looking to do is to promote African food from Africa to the Americas, making sure that people want to really realize the wonderful impact that African food has had in the world and the wonderful impact that it can have and the changes that, it can, be, that can be done by this. So we are working to promote this um, food from Africa to America to um, really create a model that can be used in marginalized communities around the world. And it's not just black folks that are having problems, it's people that have been taken advantage of their entire life because greed, colonialism, and oppression have really ruled our food systems. So what we're really trying to do is to to bring people together, bring you all together to be a part of this process. Because inside of this, we heard from Caleb today and this this, um, wonderful program where it's kind of crowdsourcing ideas and ambitions. We we have the Meatless Monday thing going. We work with youth, um, they're called the Food Warriors. And so what we're doing is we have a Meatless Monday program where they're going to introduce their their parents into the process. We're doing things on the, on the ground, and we're doing things that are really tangible. Um, Mitch asked for actions, and I'll be able to, when I said I'll be able to, to talk a little bit better. But there are actions that we are taking right now, and I will, I'm going to sit, and if you have questions, it'll be easier for me to answer that way. <laughs> Thank um, you, Phil. Yeah, sorry. Thanks, Phil.
11: Thank you, Phil. You remind us of the resiliency of the human spirit. Thank you for that. I'll leave, you, I'll leave you with this thought. Um, if we want to change things, at, at a high level, change is about innovation plus leadership. We need to disrupt, take risks on infrastructure, policy, and demand, what Eric talked about yesterday. And we need to combine that with courage, conviction, and vision. Innovation plus leadership equals change. I'll leave you with that, Delta. Enjoy your break. See you in 25 minutes. Thank you, everybody.
7: i are just trying to get to you with all those mathematical references. I'm trying, man.